specifically and ironically, virus-based cancer immunotherapeutics. Dr. Kripe is recognized as a leader and pioneer in this field and was one of the first to bring virus-based cancer therapy to experimental clinical trials for pediatrics. He's often led a lot of preclinical development of several promising candidates as well. He basically created this field for pediatrics. With his body of work, he's opened the door to immunotherapy becoming an emerging standard of care for pediatric cancer. In his spare time, Dr. Kripe produces and hosts the TWIPO podcast, which stands for This Week in Pediatric Oncology, which we highly recommend, and it's available on all the popular platforms. Thank you, Dr. Kripe. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and help with uh, this uh, complicated and important topic. Uh, it's been about nine years, I think, since we first did a webinar together. And back then we were talking about viruses and how we can use them for good. And today we're going to talk about uh, viruses and, and how we need to uh, defeat them. So uh, appreciate the opportunity. Uh, with us is uh, one of my favorite colleagues, Dr. Jeff Oletta. Uh, Jeff uh, is double boarded in pediatric hematology oncology, as well as infectious diseases, pediatric infectious diseases. And he's the director of our blood and marrow transplant program here at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And throughout his presentation, uh, I'll be taking some notes about your questions. I'll be watching your questions on the Q&A box. We already have four of them. So you're an active audience already. And uh, I'll try not to interrupt him too much, but uh, bunch the questions to the end, but um, certainly feel free to post them as Scott mentioned. So. Uh, Jeff, uh, thank you for being here and take it away. Great. Thanks, Tim. Um, thank you for the opportunity, uh, Donna and um, Steve as well, in terms of uh, for being, uh, providing this talk. So I was actually asked to uh, give an overview of uh, coronavirus. And so let me get this going here. All right. So. Um, as Tim mentioned, I'm the director of the, the host offense program, which actually is uh, a program that looks at infection, reducing infection in immunocompromised hosts like cancer patients and stem cell transplant patients, as well as the director of uh, the blood marrow transplant program. Um, so before I actually want to uh, get started with the information, I wanted to, if, if anybody can take anything out of this talk, it's these three websites that uh, I want to introduce you to. The first is the World Health Organization. Again, you can Google these things if you haven't done it already. It is an excellent website with regards to the most updated information from across the world. Uh, the second website is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website for coronavirus uh, 19. Um, it too is a great resource. Uh, obviously, it's more tainted for uh, America, but also does uh, world health as well. And as you can see on the left-hand side here, these are the topics that are addressed. And what you do is you actually click on the X and they cascade down. So there's a variety of topics and they have an excellent uh, question and answer or a sheet as well. And lastly, uh, this is the Ohio Department of Health, but I would guide you to your State Department of Health website as well. They have the most updated information locally. So again, these three websites, world, national, and local with regards to your uh, Department of Health. So the first thing I want to do is show you what coronavirus looks like. Um, so coronavirus got its name because of these little spikes at the top here, these little proteins. That is how it's given the name of crown. 
these proteins are um, needed in order to attach to human cells because basically viruses are parasites. They cannot reproduce outside of another cell. We'll get to that shortly. So when we talk about uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus disease 19, a lot of different terms being floated around. Um, so it gets confusing. So I wanted to take this opportunity to put these things into perspective. The first thing is the virus that causes COVID-19 is called SARS-CoV-2, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. So the coronaviruses, most notably or most notorious so far, have been MERS or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and the first SARS coronavirus. Um, in addition, there are lots of coronaviruses that live in our environment that our kids get exposed to and we get exposed to all the time. These are the endemic coronaviruses that I've listed here as well. So for the endemic viruses, they typically cause an upatory respiratory infection. We'll get into the etiology as well as the symptomatology of the coronavirus specific for COVID-19. So the first thing is the incubation period. So if you're exposed to a patient who's COVID-19 positive, uh, you're likely to get um, the disease within about five days. You can actually, there's a range for that, two to 14 as well. Um, and we're going to talk about this transmissibility factor. In other words, how easy it is to get to the virus. Epidemiologists call this factor r naught, and we'll have a picture of what that means. Typically, the symptoms of a coronavirus or COVID-19 are fever, shortness of breath, and cough. So these are the three screening symptoms uh, that you might hear about as well on the news. Overall, how fatal coronavirus is, is it ranges. It has a range between about a quarter of a percent all the way up to about 3%. So 3% meaning three out of 100 people will die if exposed to COVID-19. Jeff, that's just for coronaviruses in general, right? We don't really Actually, this is, the, this is the case fatality rate that's been worked out for uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, Although, based upon most, mostly the Chinese literature. Okay, so until we do a real epidemiology study, though, where we're measuring antibodies and seeing who's been prior exposed, perhaps asymptomatically, we really won't know the, the rate. Is that correct? That's correct. And a uh, good point, team, Tim. Until we actually get into proper testing, we don't even know the denominator of the number of people that are infected. So there could be an artificial increase based upon the case fatality rate because we're not treating everybody or testing rather everybody with mild and moderate disease because they're not seeking medical attention. So with regards to how COVID-19 is diagnosed, it's diagnosed by a nose swab. It literally goes in like a Q-tip in the side of your nose and they put it into a viral media and send it off for a PCR test. I'll have a picture of that on the next slide. Um, basically, we have no available FDA or Food and Drug Administration approved therapies here in America. Uh, and the best prevention is decreasing exposure. So this is what the, the test looks like. Uh, on the left side is a technician who has the nasal swabs, literally Q-tips that you see here. They're inserted inside the nostril. They get what's called nasal washing, basically snot for you and me. And they put it inside the viral media and then they seal the tube and then send it off for a PCR test. Uh, PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. And so what that does, it's a very sophisticated test that basically measures the amount of virus that's detected.
per cycle time. So in other words, if you have a high virus, you have a low cycle time. If you have a low virus, you have a high cycle time for the machine. The TAT or the turnaround time, that's what you've probably heard about in the news, varies tremendously. So it used to be that uh, our state departments of health were the site for sending these samples in order to get the result, but that's now changing and there are some commercial products that are now available to get a, a faster TAT or turnaround time actually within about two hours. So when we look at COVID-19 testing, this again was uh, to Tim's point with regards to the number of tests that have actually been done. You can see that South Korea is outpacing everybody. So that has ramifications in terms of decreasing the amount of spread of the virus. Because if you have a test and you're testing everybody, you can essentially tell those people who are positive to stay in their house versus expose the rest of us. As you can see, America, despite being a great country and great resources, is being outpaced by South Korea. Uh, so this has to do with all the tests that I mentioned in terms of commercial products that will hopefully expedite the testing process and therefore give us the denominator in order to know how many people actually have coronavirus, how severe that disease is, and how many people have died from it. So the best way to prevent coronavirus are the three basic guidelines that you've probably been pounded in with the news, but actually they're the best things that we have right now. The first is practicing good hygiene. Wash your hands frequently with soap and water. Uh, you can also use ethanol-based um, uh, cleansing as well, but not the rubbing alcohol that you have in the cabinet. That'll only dry up your hands and crack them and make them bleed. The other thing is the social or physical distancing that we're talking about. So we're all now living in a new world, almost like a brave new world of being told that we cannot leave our homes and we have to only go for certain things to leave our house. That has major implications in terms of the spread of the virus. Remember how I introduced viruses, that they are parasites. They need a host in order to replicate. Uh, and then lastly, if you are sick or one of your loved ones are sick, they should stay home and as best they can stay in one particular room of the house. Obviously that gets into feasibility issues, um, but that's the directive right now in terms of the CDC. Uh, Jeff, before so what you go on, uh, there's a couple questions related to that last, the last two slides actually. You sort of mentioned on the prior slide that there were no available therapies outside of America. Um, so they're wondering what about inside of America? I'm, I'm sorry, the uh -huh. around, there are no available inside. What about outside the United States? Yeah, so actually there's uh, the WHO is sponsoring the solidarity trial, and I'll have a couple of slides on, on that forthcoming. But essentially, it is a universal, across countries, multi-country uh, trial that looks at testing four particular treatments that we'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, so that is available. But again, each of those four treatments either have an FDA indication for another disease such as HIV or malaria, um, or they haven't been yet FDA approved yet, something called remdesivir, which we'll talk about. Well, I guess uh, the question is they're not really available, right? The trials mean there's research going on to test them. So they're not- That's correct. Therapy. In other words, you, you could not go to the hospital unless the, and, and receive these uh, uh, through the trial unless they are enrolled on a trial. Because we don't know if they work or not is the point. That's correct. And then the other question was, um, in addition to these general practices, are there any pr additional precautions that folks in, in maintenance therapy for leukemia, for example, or immunocompromised patients should be doing besides these three that you have on this slide? 
Yeah, I, I think these are the main things, uh, driving home points. In other words, uh, there aren't a lot of therapies that we know that are so efficacious that I would recommend exposing your child to based upon A, not being FDA approved, or B, not knowing if they work, but C, knowing that they have side effects associated with them. Great, thank you. Yeah. So this is a pictorial representation of that R naught. In other words, how easy it is to, for the virus to be transmitted. So here's SARS. So if you look at uh, the one sick person in orange and the rest of the people in gray, um, those people who contract SARS are the red dots. So if you compare uh, SARS or COVID, uh, SARS-1 to SARS-2, which is COVID-19, you can actually see there are a little bit less infectivity of, of COVID-19. When you compare COVID-19 to measles, measles far outpaces uh, COVID-19 in terms of how easy it is to get the infection from someone who's actually infected with the virus. Um, so in other words, they actually have come up with different rates that I've mentioned in terms of the case fatality rates, as well as the r not factor. So here's another thing that you might have seen or heard about on the news called flattening the curve. Um, this has to do with implementing things early in order to not overwhelm the healthcare system. So if we take these pro, uh, protective measures like social isolation or physical distancing and do these things early, hopefully we can decrease the amount of hosts that the virus is exposed to and therefore decrease its spread. In addition, hopefully we don't overwhelm the healthcare system either. So a lot of you are hearing on the news about New York and Seattle. These are kind of the quote unquote epicenters in America right now and how there are issues in terms of the amount of PPE or personal protection equipment as well as ventilators. So that's an issue in terms of over uh, exceeding rather the healthcare capacity based upon not having implemented things earlier. Now that's not to say that New York did anything wrong, please don't take it that way or, or Seattle. It just is because these are epicenters of, of a virus that's easily spread. And obviously these are very populous cities that's why they're overcoming the healthcare capacity at this point. So learning from the past. So the reason why these things were implemented was because of the flu in 1918. And, the, and again, you might've seen this on the news. There are two responses, uh, uh, most notably Philadelphia, as well as St. Louis. And St. Louis implemented these restrictions in terms of physical distancing slash social isolation sooner than did Philadelphia. And as you can see, Philadelphia then had a dramatic increase in the amount of, of flu cases and death rates versus St. Louis. So again, we know this from the past. That's why we're using it right now in the present. So this is actually a nice pictorial representation of this as well. So I'll come out of my presentation and go into a website to show you this. Um, so pictures are worth a thousand words. So uh, this is a nice one from the Washington Post. So as you can see, a, a sick person represented in, in brown contacts a lot of other sick people uh, or actually gets other people sick versus a healthy person who actually um, gets rid of the virus no longer instigates any sickness across different people. Makes sense, easy to understand. So this is, has to do with social isolation. When you do not isolate the sick person, he or she has the opportunity to dramatically impact other people based upon having uh, come in contact with them. So the one, the sick people are in the purple, they eventually overwhelm the amount of healthy people. So if you actually introduce or quarantine the, the sick person here, 
that sick person can only get the other people sick. If you actually uh, release that quarantine, then the sick people can actually enter out and start to uh, infect the other people. So you've heard about quarantining in, in Asia. That's exactly why they did that in order for this not to happen. And then lastly, with regards to social isolation or decreased physical distancing, if you keep people at home, therefore their dots aren't moving, it takes longer for them to actually get exposed to the virus and become sick. So that's exactly what we're hoping to do is to decrease the amount of exposure by, again, slowing down the amount of people that other people are exposed to. So again, I thought this was actually pretty helpful in order to, to explain social distancing by uh, pictorial representation. So back to the presentation here. So there are lots of recommendations. Uh, the top three that I mentioned already were wash your hands, good personal hygiene. Again, avoid touching our face. As you're probably watching me, I'll be adjusting my glasses, you know, trying to scratch something in my ear or, or my head. We're so used to touching our face and it's so hard not to do that, but that's what you have to do. Uh, with regards to distancing, you wanna distance yourself when you talk to someone in their presence, particularly outside the house. Um, obviously staying at home if you're feeling sick. Good cough hygiene. <coughs> Coughing in your sleeve, not on your hands, because if you cough in your hands, you spread it all over the place. Avoiding unnecessary travel. Um, obviously that's been taken away right now temporarily. Um, and we want to make sure that we're disinfecting objects. I'll have a slide on how hardy this virus is. So again, you wanna have kind of bleach-based disinfectants or ethanol-based disinfectants in order to clean surfaces. So this is where we get into treatments and vaccines. Um, so again, I, I mentioned how a virus is a parasite. I don't expect everybody to become virologists like Tim, but again, pictures are worth a thousand words. So you have this SARS-CoV-2 virus. It enters the cell, which is this big blue blob. What happens is it takes over, it disassembles itself, it releases its genome, which is an RNA. That genome takes over the cell's genomic capabilities to reproduce itself and then to reassemble itself and then to leave the cell. Crazy, isn't it? But that's exactly why I wanted to show you this because this is what the therapy is based upon. Um, so again, there's... If I could, sure. sorry, interrupt, um, uh, this sort of implies, you know, one virus enters a cell and one virus exits it. But for each cell, there's probably thousands of viruses being made, right? They're just factories that crank it out. That's correct. Yep. Because they are, they're parasites. They take over the whole manufacturing center of the cell. And so it's just like an assembly line, virus one, virus two, virus three, virus four. Again, as you're mentioning, Tim, coming okay. out of the cell. Yeah, the other clarification I have, I know the ACE2 uh, protein is a receptor for uh, SARS-CoV-1. Do we know that's the receptor for SARS-CoV-2? Because I know MERS has a different receptor. And yeah, great question. So, yeah. so we, we don't yet know. Um, uh, again, we're, we're thinking because there's, in other words, when you put SARS-CoV-1 next to SARS-CoV-2, you can see in essence, in order to explain to the audience how similar they are. So they have lots of similarity when you put them right next to each other, but there are differences. And one of the differences may be the ACE2 uh, and uh, efficacy in order to use a blockade. Um, so people don't yet know. Well, the reason I ask is twofold. One is 
because there's been a lot in the literature about people on ACE inhibitors that are, you know, for their hypertension and whether that mm -hmm. at risk for worsening infection uh, and because it may upregulate the ACE uh, receptor. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we don't know that. And then the other reason is because many of the uh, approaches for immunizations that you'll probably discuss are uh, targeted at blocking that the binding between the virus and its receptor. So it's going to be important, mm -hmm. you know, to know what that receptor really is. That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. So I mentioned uh, briefly about the solidarity trial. So um, as, as this audience knows very well, uh, through the Children's Oncology Group, uh, clinical research trials um, require enrollments and consent. Uh, and much like that, uh, there is a randomization that occurs with this solidarity trial. So essentially, um, if this is available at the insta treating institution, the patient can be enrolled. And again, I'll just cut the chase. These are adult patients. They're not pediatrics. Uh, the adult patient gets enrolled. After consent, he or she then gets randomized to one of these four uh, therapies. And as I mentioned before, some of these therapies have other disease indications. Again, uh, Kaletra is an anti-HIV medication. Uh, in addition, this is probably, probably the most promising agent right now, remdesivir. Um, so that's basically faking out the ability of the virus to replicate uh, based upon these little, um, these little inserts that it has in the RNA when it becomes DNA. Uh, and based upon modeling that's been done in the Petri dish, as well as in mouse models, remdesivir is actually a pretty good drug right now. It is in early phase studies for adults who have severe disease in a clinical trial, uh, and we don't yet know results based upon that. The second thing is Gilead, the pharmaceutical company, uh, it used to be able to, or has been providing rather compassionate use of the drug, but in order to get that, you, the patient has to be pretty severe, in other words, on a mechanical ventilator in order to get that. So the whole point of treatment is to use it early, right? That only makes sense. Um, and so what the solidarity trial will do is it will randomize patients with mild, moderate, and even severe disease based upon clinical criteria to be able to see if it makes a difference both for those types of, of uh, disease associated with COVID-19. The other chemical, go ahead. Well, I'll let you finish the slide, sorry. The other chemical are, uh, is called interferon alpha. So these are called cytokines and cytokines are naturally produced by our cells. And some of these cytokines actually kill viruses. And that is what interferon alpha is. It's one of these more notorious cytokines to kill viruses. So this arm uh, uses HIV inhibitor, Kaletra, and interferon alpha to hopefully be able to combat the virus in two different ways. Tim? Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, solving kids' cancer has been instrumental over the years in funding research for pediatric cancer. And I think it's important to note that these are all under research studies. Uh, you know, there's been a run on chloroquine uh, with people hoarding it. And I think it's important to note that that drug is important for other patients who need it for their FDA-approved reasons. And also it has significant side effects that can cause cardiac toxicity, long QT syndrome, et cetera. So taking these outside of the clinical trial at this point uh, could be detrimental and, and shouldn't be done. That's correct. Um, there, there are extenuating circumstances to that. In other words, some institutions are making their own guidelines in terms of these drugs. But I could tell you right away, Kaletra is in, in low supply right now. 
Um, so it should be on trial base only. And remdesivir, again, is only going to be released on compassionate use from the, from the, the company. And then lastly, people, as, as Tim, you just alluded to, institutions are um, uh, basically keeping lock and key on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine at this point. So really, you can't do these things without being on a clinical trial, as you mentioned, Tim. And would you like to say anything about NK cell therapy or its potential? Sure. So NK cells are natural killer cells. So natural killer cells uh, have are, are what's called the front line of defense of your immune system. They're one of those type of cells. So they don't recognize specifically things, uh, but they're good to uh, get rid of a lot of things. Um, and that's called our innate immune system. And so NK cells actually are chief producers of interferon alpha. So NK cells uh, can mount an antiviral immune response and they can get rid of viruses by attacking them and injecting things into them to make them burst or to release these chemicals alpha that actually uh, direct antiviral death as well. So uh, right now at Nationwide Children's Hospital, uh, Dr. Dean Lee, who is our director of the, of the uh, cell therapy and cancer immunotherapy program and an NK cell expert, is looking at NK cells right now for their antiviral effects against COVID-19. And there's a question of, well, on the drug treatments, uh, a question about other antivirals such as valgenciclovir or acyclovir, and is that helpful or not? Uh, mm. Leukemia patients are on those kinds of antiviral mm -hmm. drugs. That's a great question. So, uh, with uh, acyclovir and, and uh, valgancyclovir and gancyclovir, the unfortunate thing is they do not work against uh, SARS-like coronaviruses. Um, so they are specific to the herpes viruses, uh, things like CMV for gancyclovir, and uh, and the herpes HSV virus for acyclovir. And any trials for pediatric patients? To my knowledge, uh, not yet. Um, so I, d I don't know of any current trials. I will say, obviously, the FDA is looking at fast-tracking uh, trials at this point. Uh, but to my knowledge, I do not know of any pediatric-centric or specific trials. Great. Thank you. Yep. So another form of prevention, other than uh, what I mentioned with regards to hygiene, social isolation, slash physical distancing, and staying home if you're sick are vaccines, right? That seems to make sense. Obviously, we get a flu shot every year. Every uh, parent and child on this webinar should get a flu shot every year. Uh, and with regards to that, the whole premise of that is exposing the body to a little bit of inactivated virus so that these B cells or antibody producing cells can expand. And so once they expand, they float around in the bloodstream so that if we get exposed to influenza, these cells are ready, rip-roaring, ready to go. Um, so that's how a vaccine works. Uh, obviously, vaccines have to be tested. They have to be tested in animals first, and then they have to be tested in humans. And there's a whole process with regards to FDA approval for that. And that's why when you hear Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci is the head of one of the National Institutes of Health Centers, the NIAID. He's a small Italian guy. Um, so when you see Dr. Fauci, you'll often say that vaccines are a good 12 to 18 months away, and it's true. Obviously, people are fast-tracking that research right now, but there's a whole process that needs to occur. Again, this audience is sensitive to FDA approval, 
uh, a lot of times the, the chemotherapy that uh, it, their children are receiving actually is not FDA approved for that indication, or there has been considerable enough experience on the other side to then use that type of chemotherapy for your children. So right now we have neither for vaccines for SARS-CoV-2. We don't have FDA approval and we don't have enough experience because those vaccines haven't been developed yet. So that's why the vaccine's gonna take a while. So what's driving this pandemic? You know, in other words, when we, when we see all these graphs of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, over 300,000 right now throughout the, year, the world, what's really driving this pandemic? Again, this is some medical literature. I don't think you have to absorb so much. I just wanted to prove a couple points. The first is out of this, uh, this study is that the virus can be spread in two ways, aerosols and fomites. So fomites are anything that you can touch, essentially, and that could have the virus on top of them. The summary of this study was that the SARS-CoV-2 in experimental conditions can remain viable, alive, and infectious in aerosols for in an aerosol form for hours and on surface for days. So you can imagine if a person with COVID-19 comes by, touches a surface on the bus, for example, and then leaves the bus, the bus isn't clean on that chair or that rail, another person comes and touches and then they touch their face, that's exactly how it's spread. The virus is very hardy. The second thing is we may have the virus and not even know it. So this is a study out of China that looked at asymptomatic infections. So roughly about 85% of all the infections that were undocumented were asymptomatic. Isn't that crazy? So in other words, the vast majority of people with SARS actually didn't even get the, the COVID-19. So now they're not quarantined, right? They're not told to stay at home for 14 days. So they're out there not even knowing that they actually have uh, uh, COVID-19 or, or the virus and spreading it that way. So the third thing is this pictorial representation. Again, not to make you a virologist, but I thought this was cool enough to show, uh, and that actually drives home the point. So if you have mild disease in blue, you tend to actually um, get virus, um, but you actually don't have a high viral load versus people who have severe virus have a high viral load. Now, the reason is there are reference values that they use. So in other words, a standard viral load that they test with the patients. And the reason why you, this seems like it's low is actually there's no, no change between the reference, which is always an incredibly high amount, and the patient sample. So that's why this change between the two is, is so low. So the severe patients have just amount, have almost the same amount of high virus as the reference case. Why would and then on the other side, go ahead. Why would that be? You have any explanations? Yeah, so uh, it could be that there, at one point, you know, on the spectrum of disease, people have gotten so severe um, that the virus has just taken over, right? I, I mean, that makes logical sense because it's a parasite. What we don't know, if the, what you're alluding to, Tim, is who are those people who are predisposed to s severe disease? We know that from a epidemiology standpoint, in other words, people who are greater than 65, in particular, people who are greater than 85, um, as well as people who have comorbid conditions like pulmonary disease uh, and also cerebral vascular disease. Those are the people who, with comorbidities and the elderly who have the highest risk of severe disease. 
Now, when we talk about the immune system, there are a couple things that we know that kids outpace adults in, and that's the ability to fight an infection, and the second thing is to recover from it. So those are two take-home messages from this talk that I want everybody on the webinar to understand. Your child is actually um, at a better point versus a severe elderly patient uh, based upon age alone. So his or her immune system is functioning, even though it's suppressed, it's still functioning relative to an, an older person because over time, our immune systems change. It's almost like being reborn again. When you're an infant, you don't really, haven't been exposed to much and therefore you have increased risk of, of uh, getting infection. That's why it's so important. And we advocate the breastfeed because of the colostrum actually gives important antibodies to the child so that they get exposed to that, they actually don't get infected from it. And elderly persons, just like an infant, our immune systems do great, great, great. All of a sudden midlife comes and almost presumably a midlife crisis occurs from our immune system and they actually don't function as well as we get older. So that's probably a, a reason why older people get severe disease. So there's a related question is, and that is if, if someone is getting their annual flu shots or other kinds of immune stimuli, is their immune system revved up in general? And is there any indication that that sort of generalized revving up of the immune system may help them fight off another infection like COVID-19? Yeah, that's, that's a great uh, question. I, the, the short answer is we don't know. Um, it would make intuitive sense that if your immune system is working properly and it's responding to, to a vaccine, that it should be able to mount some form of response to uh, the COVID-19 virus. However, we have to realize that this is a whole new virus that our, we have never been exposed to. So to, to uh, think that we have some form of innate immunity against SARS-CoV-2 um, would be a stretch because our bodies have never seen it before. That's why it's a pandemic right now. Great. So the other thing uh, is another reason why this has become a pandemic is kids themselves. They actually have persistent fecal uh, around the rectal areas and stool shedding of the virus. Um, so this is, again, pictures worth a thousand words. When they took rectal swabs, again, Q-tips around the rectal area, uh, these are immunocompetent kids. So we would never do this for your cancer child in terms of a rectal thermometer. Remember, you never take a, a PR rectal temperature. So a rectal swab is one thing, uh, but these are immunocompetent kids. So when they actually swabbed around the rectum, put it in the viral media, and saw, saw how long it took after they developed um, uh, COVID-19, you can see literally almost up to four weeks later, they're still able to detect virus from the rectal swab. Same thing from the nose. When they took the nose sample I showed you, when they start where they got sought medical attention and were diagnosed with COVID-2, they actually had prolonged shedding up to two weeks from their nose. So again, think about our kids, especially toddlers, daycare, and fecal-oral spread and spreading things from their nose, again, you, you can then see why this is a pandemic in terms of that. So does that mean that 14 days is not sufficient for quarantine if they're shedding it beyond 14 days? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and this data would assume, based for pediatrics at least, it would make you take pause. But for, again, the, the patients who are getting this, they are mostly adults. And for mostly adults, it seems to hold the 14 days. Okay. So again, kind of a review as to why this is a pandemic. It's a hardy virus. It sticks around, again, on the, the, the analogy on the bus handles uh, by the chairs. 
Uh, people can carry the virus and they don't get sick, so they're asymptomatic. People who have severe disease have a lot of viral burden. And then lastly, kids shed the, uh, the virus for a long time after getting infected. So again, now we're gonna focus on pediatrics. That's the background on COVID-19. Let's focus on, on why we're here in terms of pediatrics. So the vast majority of literature is coming out of China. Uh, why? Because that was the epicenter of the, of, of the virus. So based upon that, the Chinese Center for Disease Control looked at about 73,000 cases, less than 1% were pediatric. So far, so good. The second thing is most of the infected children had mild disease. Again, there's the asymptomatic 27% or, or 27 out of 171 or about 16% didn't even have a symptomatic infection. 30, 33 patients or about 19 had an upper respiratory tract infection and 65 had pneumonia, which is classic for the SARS. But again, mild uh, cases or moderate. This is the next most recent study, now looking at about 2,100 pediatric patients. Uh, the conclusion of this study were, again, over 2,000 pediatric patients. I'll show you the raw data in a second. That the vast majority of COVID-19 cases were less severe than the adults' patients. And then there is a higher risk group infants. And again, based upon how I explain the infant immune system, that, was, that would make sense. Uh, they are a little bit more vulnerable to infection. But the vast majority of the kids, 90% of them, 1,922 divided by the total amount of cases, had mild or moderate disease. So this should bring some reassurance to us. Again, this is another country. Now, what, what about in the U.S.? Can we get some data from the U.S. now? So the first thing is um, you can look at the CDC website, and in real time, they can tell you how many total cases there are, how many deaths there are in the country. So this is as of this date. And they can tell you based upon where this, the virus was, uh, was gotten. So right now, travel-related is uh, now falling behind close contact-related. Why? Because it made sense that travelers brought it in. Now, again, remember those dots that I showed you? Now that you've been, these people have been here a while, they've exposed the rest of us in terms of that. So now the close contacts are uh, increasing as well. So when we look at the U.S. and compare it to the rest of the world, so remember South Korea had all that testing that outpaced America. That testing on top of implementing those preventative strategies like social distancing has really paid dividends in terms of decreasing the amount of deaths in South Korea. What we're seeing in Spain and Italy are astronomical right now in terms of the amount of people dying. Obviously, any death diminishes us, right, as a society. But thinking about how many tenfold they're occurring right now in terms of Italy and Spain is just catastrophic. Right now, obviously, in America, we're going through similar catastrophe. Um, and we are not as high and not as steep on that curve right now but we really need to take pause and make sure that we're doing as many preventative things as we can. These are just graphs specific for America. As you can see, the number of cases has logarithmically increased um, over the last couple of days. And that's what we're seeing. This is what we call the surge of the epidemic or the pandemic in this case. And this is what we're gonna be following in terms of the US. The other thing has to do with the trajectory. Again, I, I told you right now we're in a logarithmic increase of the amount of virus in, in our country. Again, 
implementation of an engaged community that understands why they're doing this, as well as early testing, as well as implementation of preventative strategies have dramatically de decreased the amount of COVID-19 in these Asian countries who have implemented these soon. So that's what we want to do right now. We want to be able to do that. The UK just did that today. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're doing that across the spectrum. It'll be interesting to see if this curve changes. Uh, and this little tail right here is that logarithmic phase that the US is in right now. UK will probably soon be in that. So when we talk about the US experience, we can in fact look at plenary data. So the CDC has these weekly reports that are available on the internet. And so this is again, preliminary data, but for this audience, I wanted to show some reassuring data. So again, reassuring data number one, everything out of China so far shows that it's an adult disease. Reassuring data two out of China is that pediatric patients who do get it tend to get mild and, uh, and even moderate uh, disease versus severe disease, more severe disease in adults. So this is actually looking at um, uh, data from mid-February to mid-March. Uh, and as you can see, the same thing is holding in America. And that is the highest fatality rates are in people who are greater than 85 years of age. And that greatly goes down the younger you become. And there have been no fatalities uh, reported thus far in patients less than 19 years of age. Now, again, this is early data but it is reassuring and we have to be prepared that this may change, right? But as it stands right now, based upon other experiences throughout the world and based upon our current own, this should be some reassuring data. When we break this down, we look at hospitalization rates. Again, for our kids in terms of zero to 19 years of age, it's a pretty small hospitalization rate compared to those that are uh, 85 years of age. In addition, there have been no ICU admissions and there have been no case fatalities. Again, this is mostly immunocompetent because they don't break down if these patients have a compromised immune system in this report. The other thing is, again, ICU deaths, looking at this in a different form in terms of deaths and admissions, you can actually see there's been hospitalizations for our kids, but there's been no ICU admissions and no deaths as well. So again, pediatrics pays to be young, doesn't it? This is the data that shows that. So what about our pediatric oncology and bone marrow transplant patients? What is the data out there? Is there any? I will have to say there's not much, but of the anecdotal and reportable experiences, it too is reassuring. So when we go to Italy, for example, Italy is really hard struck. This is on March 14th. It's you know, higher even now, about a week later in terms of the number of cases. Um, and what they've seen in terms of around 20,000 cases back then is that there uh, was actually no positive cases confirmed in any pediatric hemonc or bone marrow transplant patient. So that too is reassuring uh, for us during a scary time. And that's the power of knowledge, right? That's the whole power of this webinar is to provide knowledge to empower you to, to decrease a little bit of anxiety. Don't put your guard down, but decrease it based upon at least what's out there right now for our patients. When we look to China, again, similar experience. When we look at Seattle, again, I mentioned that's an epicenter right now in America. Seattle Children's thus far has not had any pediatric hemonc or bone marrow transplant patient who's developed COVID-19 right now. Again, is it over? Not yet. But with regards to what we have, pretty reassuring at this point. So what are some of the reasons you explain those low rates? Because we think our patients are the most vulnerable. 
Yeah. So, so it's true. Uh, there, without a doubt, obviously, kids are getting chemotherapy that knocks down their counts, knocks down their immune system. We always tell parents, if they have a fever, let us know. They have a line, increases the risk of a bloodstream infection. Uh, don't put your guard down in terms, of, even though you're in maintenance chemotherapy because you have a central line. All those messages still apply here, folks. Do not let your guard down in terms of what I've just showed, because in and of itself, we still don't have a lot of good published data right now in this population, but it's reassuring. Now, to Tim's question, it is probably has to do with all of that epidemiologic data. For some reason, kids are actually protected, maybe by the, the hand of God in terms of this disease right now. So they seem to be protected from severe disease. And so that's probably why they're not entering the hospital. There must be some, something unique to being a, a pediatric person that this virus right now um, seems to want to preferentially infect an adult. And I think some of the also uh, reason that has been put out there for uh, hemonc patients as well is that they were already being protected, already having some social isolation, especially those on chemotherapy. And so they weren't out there getting exposed when this virus was out there without any of us knowing it. Before you go on, we only have about 12 minutes left. Uh, and there's been a lot of questions about um, the basics of you know, how long does the virus sit on surfaces? Does Lysol work and inactivate it? Can the wind blow it around? Are we gonna, what's the difference between droplet and dry? You know, if someone spews it into the air, can we breathe it in? And uh, if they touch their, the food and then we eat the food, is the food spoiled? Can you quickly answer those and then maybe squip, skip pretty quickly through the rest of your slides? Sure, yeah. So, um, so in and of itself, the virus can last a long time on surfaces. The CDC website, again, if you go to that website and go to um, Be Prepared at Home, it's on the face page. Uh, it actually toggles down, you can drill down to ways to disinfect the surfaces at your home. So uh, for sure, uh, it, inc it uh, is on surface. For sure, it is spread by respiratory droplets. In other words, kind of that classic thing that you've probably seen on the internet when a, when a guy sneezes and you see all the particles disperse uh, from the sneeze, it is definitely transmitted that way. Aerosolized, we think it is as well. Um, so the really the only way to, to kind of prevent yourself from getting it is to not be around those people uh, who then spread it in that way. So the virus is definitely hardy and can be spread different ways. And what about the different disinfectants? Yeah, so right now the recommendation is, is uh, bleach-based disinfectant for surface wipes. Again, that's not taking the bleach and the 100% bleach and using it. It's diluting it. So again, refer to the CDC website. And then also with regards to disinfectant wipes as well, as long as they're ethanol-based, they're effective or, or bleach-based as well. Great. Thank you. So if you're a transplant patient, uh, that you can refer to the National Marrow Donor Program as well. So Two last things are, I wanna to touch upon the changing hospital environment. Um, so what to expect if you now need to go to the hospital with your kids? The first thing is your kids will be screened. They will be screened by symptoms. Does Billy have a cough? Does Billy have a fever? Does Billy have shortness of breath? Those are the three screening questions. If Billy does, he will likely have to have a PCR test if it's available in order to know if he's SARS-CoV-2 positive. There are lots of algorithms right now in terms of inpatient and outpatient care. If, you are, if your child is admitted to the hospital and they're ruled, being ruled out for COVID-19 or they have COVID-19, 
they may not be on the usual floor. They may be placed in a negative pressure room so that the air doesn't expose others as well. Uh, in addition, your child, based upon where he or she is in their therapy, may not actually need to come to the hospital right now because the risk of exposure outpaces the risk of um, what needs to be done. Uh, so this gets into maintenance chemotherapy that may be potentially spread. Uh, in addition, though, there may be telemedicine, again, webinars with you and your care team uh, to discuss things. This is what personal protective equipment looks like. It's very scary, right? Especially if you're a young child. So be prepared, prepare your kids, show them this on the internet of what the healthcare workers look like. Obviously they're here to protect themselves, but they're here also to protect your kids. This is what the screening drive-ins look like if you have any in the city. Uh, you go in your car, you're masked, they come out, they swab your nose. This is what the screening drive-in looks like as well. So how will this impact my child's care? Lots of these questions we've actually already addressed already. Um, I'll give, I'll float through these in order to kind of get into the last section, which is maintaining patient safety. What happens now that my child is enrolled on this children's oncology protocol? Um, what will happen to him or her? In essence, patient safety will always remain the top priority. There are policies and safeguards in place from the federal government, as well as the children's oncology group, as well as the child's institution in terms of patients who are enrolled on protocols. Again, there may be changes based upon deviations with regards to um, coming to the hospital versus not necessarily getting that re recommended biospecimen sample because the risks of exposure uh, exceed the benefit of that study at this point. As a parent or caregiver, legal caregiver, you are always at the authority to remove your child at any time off of a, off of a study. So the summary and take-home points of this talk, uh, sorry, I, I went on, hopefully, um, forgive me if, if I didn't get to your question right away, but we'll, hopefully we'll get to them. First is the COVID-19 is a pandemic that impacts us all, and it will for quite some time. So that's the other message here. We're gonna be having this impact for quite some time. Obviously, those of us in the workforce know that in, in impact as well. But remember that we're all in this together. These societies um, are helpful in terms of spreading information and get reading of misinformation. And there's a nice uh, review article from um, NCCN as well uh, that I'd ask you to, to Google as well. But your child, even though we may not be seeing him or her on a regular basis, is not forgotten. Please remember that. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for that great review of the topic. We have about six minutes for us to run through a few more questions. One question that I'll answer actually is that, uh, is pediatric cancer research coming to a halt or being impacted by this? And certainly I can say laboratory research is slowing down in the sense that we've been all asked to close our research laboratories and only maintain activities uh, that are considered essential, such as refilling liquid nitrogen tanks to preserve all of our cell lines, or, um, uh, but not to start any new experiments and even to shut down some experiments that are ongoing uh, that we still need to collect data from, and they prefer that we repeat those at a later time point. And this is so that we don't infect each other. We don't have multiple people in the research laboratory. And it's unfortunate, but again, as you said, it impacts us all, uh, and it will impact the progress. Now, uh, we are also finding that we are utilizing our time wisely. We have remote lab meetings. We um, have people reading more papers and writing papers. And so to some extent, it's a time to set back and catch up on some of the paperwork and the reading and the writing that we 
uh, don't get to on a daily basis when we're in doing the actual research. Um, the other question, I guess, uh, an important one I wanted to make sure we get on the air here is uh, someone asked, with respect to your graph that children may shed it much longer, uh, they're wanting to know, you know, if, if their child is at risk because of it being immunocompromised, being on chemo, when this whole thing is, is sort of over in the sense that schools reopen uh, or children are allowed no longer to shelter in place, et cetera, should they hold their children back even longer because those children might still be shedding even though the, you know, the restrictions have been lifted? Mm -hmm. that, that's actually a great, great question, a great point. Um, my first answer has nothing to do with the question, but it's going to be the reality of the situation. The academic year is over. Um, so I, I, I really don't think kids will be going back to, to school at this point based upon, again, kind of that surge that we're seeing right now. And um, that hasn't even kind of crested over yet. So that's, there's no way to, to think about kids going back to school by that that one artificial deadline about two weeks uh, from the start. Um, so uh, I don't know if that alleviates some anxiety right now, but at least from my opinion and, and what I've seen so far, I don't think our kids are going back this year. Um, so, but if this lasts longer, if this lasts through the summer and it actually, uh, and we think about going back in the fall, uh, when can they actually get safely go back? And I think it, it, a lot has to do with the whole epidemiology of this. In other words, the number of new cases that we're seeing still in the community, the number of people who are sick in the community, all that will be helpful information for us as epidemiologists and physicians and healthcare workers to make uh, that recommendation in terms of when the kids should go back to school. We just don't have the information yet or data yet. Yeah. And this topic will probably be covered on tomorrow's webinar with Dr. Allen. Uh, Greg Allen, but uh, one question is, you know, how, when are patients considered uh, immunologically intact? In other words, someone say two years post-treatment, are they still at greater risk for the virus and to be considered immunocompromised? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, <clears throat> again, the answer lies in even before COVID-19, and that is we don't have great ways of measuring the immune response inside the body. So we kind of have crude ways of looking at the absolute neutrophil count or the absolute lymphocyte count and making recommendations of when to stop Bactrim prophylaxis based upon, let's say, six months after therapy for uh, pediatric ALL, for example, or six months um, after uh, receiving some form of immunosuppression. We, with a field, desperately needs uh, functional assays of immune response. Those are coming, and uh, they just haven't yet been tested yet in pediatrics, but that's what we need. We need these functional readouts to know, again, does Sarah's immune system, after she stopped uh, maintenance chemotherapy in February, if we take her blood and be able to measure how well it works against exposing it to a virus, for example, or exposing it outside the body, of course, to another chemical and see how those cells function in producing those chemicals or cytokines that I mentioned, that's a functional immune response. We just don't yet have the, the, uh, the technology down for pediatrics. Great. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to answer a quick answer to one more important question, and then I'm going to turn it back to Scott to close it all out. Uh, so thank you, Jeff. Uh, the question is about patients currently on therapy and the worry about going into the hospital to undergo LPs or bone marrows or get chemo and being around other kids. And I would assure people or try to reassure people that uh, we're doing a lot of screening outside the hospital. We're limiting 
numbers of visitors. We're screening uh, employees and, and doing all kinds of things to reduce the number of patients if they're not urgent to, to put them off for several months uh, so that we minimize the traffic in there and uh, uh, employees are staying home uh, and self-quarantining when necessary. There's a lot of precautions in place. And like you said, Seattle hasn't had any inpatient cases. We had no, we've done a lot of testing and our patients had no inpatient uh, positive cases. One nurse who was tested positive had been self-quarantined uh, a week prior to that and did not pose a risk to anyone in the hospital. So it's very important to continue to get the chemotherapy and the treatment. And another person had asked, can they put off their maintenance treatments? And that would be dangerous as well. So we wanna uh, reassure the population that uh, all the hospitals are doing everything they can to minimize any risk and uh, we still consider it a safe place to go. So with that, uh, Scott, I'll turn the reins back over to you to make any closing statements and thank you for the opportunity to share this information and thank you, Dr. Aletta. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Tim, and thanks, Jeff. That was an excellent presentation and virtual discussion. Um, you guys broke away from your doctor duties, which is really important, but uh, spending time with us was amazing, so thank you. I want to thank everybody for contributing their questions today, all the attendees, because um, these doctors are able to address the most important topics on everybody's mind. So again, any questions that are not addressed due to time constraints, we'll be able to follow up and share those. Thanks to uh, Jeff and Tim helping out with that. Um, also, an archive of the webinar will be available and shared. And uh, we plan on hosting future webinars addressing additional topics of immediate concern for pediatric cancer families. So stay tuned for those announcements. And last, um, we're fortunate that another webinar is taking place tomorrow. That'll be at 12 noon Eastern, hosted by Dr. Greg Ani. Dr. Ani is a pediatric oncologist from UT San Antonio. He's also a childhood cancer survivor, and he'll discuss issues facing families who have a child in treatment, as well as things specific to survivors. So for details on that, you can go to cac2.org website. Stay healthy out there and stay informed and stay connected in a safe way, and have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you.